Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday marked the 75th anniversary of the Lübeck disaster. Um, it's something that isn't as widely known about as it should be. And so we decided to uh, bring in someone who could tell us more about it and help us to commemorate the thousands of dead um, that lost their lives on that day. Alina, who do we have with us? So we have Robert Watson with us today, who is a historian, author and professor at Lynn University. He has written over 40 books like The Nazi Titanic, The Ghost Ship of Brooklyn and America's First Crisis, The War of 1812. I've asked Robert to come and join us today to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Lubetsk disaster. Many of you most likely haven't heard of this tragedy. So today, Robert, Alex and I are going to make sure that the victims of the disaster will be remembered. So welcome, Robert. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here and I admire what you're doing. And um, this is an event that has largely been forgotten by history. So I very much appreciate that you have remembered it. Most people don't know anything about this. Thank you for what you're doing. To be honest, I didn't actually know about this event till uh, I came across it in my research. I wanted to know more about it. So it inspired me to carry on reading. And now we've got a chance to tell people about it. So let's get started. Give us a brief outline of the Cap Arcona because she was to play a major role in the disaster and we should know more about her. When was she built? What was she used for during the Second World War? Good, good. So the Cap Arcona was one of the greatest ocean liners ever to sail. Uh, she was built uh, by Blum and Voss, which is a major shipbuilding company, still in existence, by the way, in Germany. She was built in the 1920s. She was operated by Hamburg, South America. Hamburg sued SU Glottelstop D, who's still in existence as well. Uh, she was known as the, the, the Queen of the South Atlantic the Floating Palace, all these remarkable names. Uh, European monarchs sailed on her. Hollywood A-list actors sailed on her. Uh, she was meant to look a lot like the Titanic. The design plans for the ship were inspired by the Titanic. Uh, same uh, great chandelier, uh, the big uh, st staircase, you know, seven-course dinners, a full orchestra. One of the few differences between the Titanic and the Cap Arcona was the Cap Arcona only had three funnels. The Titanic had four. So in the late 30s, 20s and 30s, she was one of the grandest vessels uh, afloat uh, anywhere in the world. So what happens is uh, it turns out that Hitler loves big ships, uh, as do a lot of the top Nazis, Hermann Goering, uh, Admiral Dunitz, 
uh, Heinrich Himmler, Joseph Goebbels. Uh, Hitler and his cronies love big ships, so when they see this ship, they absolutely love it. They don't want the ship to be sunk or lost. So to save this pride of the of, of Germany, they move her to the southern Baltic along the Polish, the North Polish coast. That, as as anybody that studies World War II knows, that's one of the last areas of Europe to be really hit hard during the war. So she sits there on the uh, North Polish, South Baltic coast during the war. She's used for two purposes. One, uh, she's used as a floating naval barracks, a training platform for naval officers. So um, this glorious ship, she has her Persian uh, Persian rugs t- taken out, the chandeliers, the gold, the silver, everything is taken out, and there she rusts and serves as a, a training platform. Then something amazing happens in 1942. Hitler, in a rare moment of lucidity, Hitler says to Joseph Goebbels, his propagandist, he says, you know, we could lose this war. We need to come up with some new front in the war, something that changed the tide of the war. And he advocates for a new propaganda front in the war. He tasks Joseph Goebbels with coming up with that. Now, they weren't sure what kind of propaganda front they were going to do, but here's what Hitler and Goebbels knew. Movies. They were both obsessed with Hollywood movies. They even wanted to recreate Hollywood on the Rhine and make Germany a competitor to Jewish Hollywood. So Hitler and Goebbels loved Hollywood movies. They watched them all the time. They hated Casablanca because anyone that's seen Casablanca knows it's a brilliant film, but it could be seen as an anti-Nazi propaganda film. So Joseph Goebbels made a lot of movies, vicious anti-Semitic propaganda movies, but they were all formulaic, very sophomoric. They had the same plot an idyllic little community until someone Jewish moves in and the person's depicted like a Dracula figure. Everything goes wrong until the people rise up and either drive out or kill uh, the Jew and everyone lives happily ever after. So Hitler wants Goebbels to make a great propaganda movie, the greatest propaganda movie ever. It'll be so powerful that it will make the Allies look bad and make the world love the Nazis. So what they want to do is they want something like Casablanca, an action drama romance, not the usual, you know, sophomore propaganda film. So around that same time, there's a Nazi script writer named Brat, B-R-A-T-T. He's working on a script for the Titanic. And Hitler, Goebbels, Brat, they all realize that one of the most compelling stories ever told is the Titanic. And long before James Cameron figured out it would make a hell of a movie, they decided to make a propaganda movie about the Titanic. Only it would be so imbued with pro-Nazi propaganda that, you know, the, the Americans and Brits on board the ship didn't care about the people. The German crew members knew all about icebergs and risked their lives to save kids. So they propagandized the Titanic. Now, the kicker was they wanted to make this movie like a Cecil B. DeMille-esque, you know, cast of thousands, greatest story ever told. Um, so what they knew is that they already had a star for the movie, and that was the Cap Arcona. Sitting off the Polish coast was a replica 
of the Titanic. So they spruced the ship back up, fresh coat of paint, put all the extravagant furnishings inside. They even built a fake fourth funnel, a smokestack, so it looked just like the Titanic. And they used the Cap Arcona as the star in this great but horrific propaganda film. Long story short, everything went wrong in the filming of the movie. One of the actresses gets pregnant. The soldiers who were assigned to be extras destroy the set. The movie director, Herbert Salpine, he gets drunk and criticizes the Nazis. They summon him to Joseph Goebbels' propaganda office, and he's hanged and killed. They finally finish this propaganda movie about the Titanic, and they realize they can't make it because the movie hits too close to home. Countless thousands of German sailors had died, and they're going to show the German people in the world a movie about another ship sinking. Plus, the director who had been killed, Herbert Selpine, the director, has the last laugh from the grave. It turns out that he not only has Nazi propaganda, but he inserts anti-Nazi propaganda into the film. So the, the Cap Arcona ship, which is known as the Nazi Titanic, thus the name of my book, Hitler's nickname for it, the name of the movie, this ship is not only a great ocean liner, it's not only a floating naval barracks. It's not only the star of a movie. This ship serves many, many lives, and it would end up serving uh, one of the most difficult roles imaginable when it was involved in one of the most heinous crimes in human history. So if we're going to talk about a Capricorn, we need to mention Konstantinslaga Neungamme. Everybody, you will understand why we're going in such a staggered base, because it will all make sense to you in a moment. So could you tell us a little bit more about the concentration camp, what it looked like before the evacuation in April 1945, and what role did it play in the concentration camp system? Right. So as, as you well know, the, um, the winter of 1945 is one of the most difficult periods in world history because Hitler issues his infamous liquidation decree. Any concentration camp that has not yet been liberated or liquidated, he wants destroyed. He wants no evidence of the camps. That means the camp itself physically, the concentration camp prisoners, the records, everything destroyed. So there's just wholesale uh, industrial level murder going on in the winter and early spring of, of 45. Uh, who enters our story is uh, Heinrich Himmler, uh, who oversees the Gestapo and these camps. Himmler contacts several of the concentration camp commandants, and in a very cryptic letter, he says, I don't want any of the prisoners to fall into allied hands. Does that mean kill everyone? Does that mean move them? Does that mean rescue them? The reason he's cryptic is Himmler can't let Hitler know the real purpose of what he wants to do because he would be put to death. What Himmler wants, Himmler wants tens of thousands of concentration camp survivors moved to Hamburg, which is in north-central Germany, not many kilometers from the Baltic Sea. From there, from the camp KZ Neuengamme, N-E-U-E-N-G-A-M-M-E, he wants them moved to Lubick Bay, which you mentioned Lubick earlier in your comments. There they're supposed to, all these concentration camp prisoners are supposed to board a ship. What ship? Does uh, Himmler pick for the task? What other ship? The Cap Arcona, 
the Nazi Titanic. So what he wants is he wants to load the ship up with Holocaust survivors and either sail to or have people meet with him. It's unclear because he ends up being captured and commits suicide before this all plays out. He wants to use these concentration camp prisoners as a bargaining chip. I will give you, the Allies, thousands and thousands of prisoners if you save my life. He also wants to try to open up negotiations for a separate uh, conditional surrender on the Western Front, which shows you how absolutely mad he is. So you have thousands upon thousands of survivors that are all marched to Nui and Gama. And this death march, they are moved at night because during the day there's bombings. The German soldiers are worried that the war is ending. The Allies are closing in. Uh, people have survived the war, these concentration camp prisoners, without food, weak, skeletal. And yet they're forced in this death march miles and miles a day. Anyone that can't keep up, if you fall, you're shot where you fall. They're stepped on by the hordes behind them. They're moved to Noyangama. And that's sort of the central receiving point. It's a massive concentration camp that was also doubled as a brick-making factory. They also did some medical experiments there on children, Jewish children as well. Um, once they're all in Noyangama, from there, the remaining few kilometers, they're brought by barge, by train, and by foot all the way to Lubick Bay. Now, we don't have an accurate count on how many died. Uh, the Nazis are too busy dying themselves and running for their lives. Um, we know that thousands uh, died. We don't have, Beyond that, we can't narrow it down any more than that. We do know that some of those taken in barges up the rivers uh, to the bay, when, they were, when the barges were strafed and attacked by Allied aircraft, many were killed in the barges. We know that more than one of the barges that was overfilled deep barge that was used to carry rock and industrial products. The, men, the survivors couldn't climb out of it. It was too deep. It was so overweighted with prisoners that it rolled over and sunk, and people were lost in that. We also know that some in the trains, they were put in cattle cars, which everyone who studies the Holocaust knows about and, and you know a lot about. Uh, they were put in these cattle cars and taken to the Baltic, shoved, you know, dozens per car. The problem was one of the entire trains, when they made it to the Baltic, the Nazi guards ran like hell and never unlocked the cars. The people that were taken in these train cars were found days later. They were all dead because they were in there for days without food or water. And one of the eyewitnesses said that several kilometers away, they could smell the death from uh, from these uh, trains. So the death march, the trains, the barges just contribute to the level of depravity and, and inhumanity. And again, sadly, we don't have an exact number on how many thousands died. The Allies, an American unit, would liberate uh, Noyangama right after they left. And when they liberated it, they found bodies still lined up in the camp. Anyone that couldn't walk was just shot where they stood, and this is what the Americans found. I feel like um, someone else needs to be commemorated in this. Uh, let's talk about the Swedish count and diplomat, uh, Folk Bernadotte. How does he fit into the narrative before the evacuation? So uh, Folk Bernadotte it is a Swedish count. He's the nephew of the monarch in Sweden. He's one of the officers in the International Red Cross, and he reads about the horrors of the Holocaust. 
He also reads about a couple of brave souls who went and saved Holocaust survivors. So he realizes, I need to do something. He realizes as the war's ending, the Nazis who are capable of anything are liable to just kill everyone, civilians, prisoners, and, and anyone. So he realizes he needs to do something. So in the winter and spring of 45, in the final weeks to the war, he takes what he calls his white buses campaign. He gets Red Cross buses, white, with the red cross on the roof. Uh, he has two boats, a couple of dozen motorcycles, cars, and buses, and ambulances. And he goes into Germany. His original goal is he wants to save Swedes. When Hitler took power and advocated all this master race, the Ubermensch, the blonde, blue-eyed, Scandinavian, northern European gods on earth. Uh, a lot of German men went to Sweden to marry the blonde, blue-eyed, tall Swedish women. So there were a lot of Swedish women and by, you know, mixed children living in Germany. So Bernadotte goes there to rescue them. And what he does is he plays Heinrich Himmler like a fool, plays him like a guitar. He tells Himmler, this war is going to end and you're in trouble. You could use a friend like neutral Sweden. He says, you know, I know Churchill. I know Roosevelt. I know I can negotiate. I can help you. Of course, he didn't know all those people, but Himmler takes the bait. He tells Himmler, if you help me to release Swedes and get them back to Sweden, that would be a good sign and I will work with you. So he's allowed to go to the camps and take Swedes and his buses back to Sweden. However, once he gets into the camps and sees what's happening, he changes his goal. Now he doesn't want to just help Swedes. He wants to help the French, Jews, everyone. So he goes back. The condition from Himmler is that Folky Bernadotte can't use any German gas, German vehicles. He has to bring everything with him, clothing, blankets, food, gas. And, of course, the skies are being attacked by German planes, the Luftwaffe, American, British, and so on. His convoy is attacked. They're almost bombed. They're almost killed. He goes back in and rescues women, French, Jews, Poles. And he's taking uh, – he ultimately rescues – uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 25, 26,000, uh, people. So he's kind of a Wallenberg, kind of an Oscar Schindler figure in that respect, risking his life time and time again to go into Germany and get people out. As fate would have it, during one of his rescue missions, he's told about the Cap Arcona, the Nazi Titanic. He's told that it's in the town of Neustadt, N-E-U, S-T-A-D-T, New City, in Lubbock Bay. So he races there. He arrives at Noyangama, which we just talked about, the massive concentration camp, and finds thousands of dead. Then what he does is he follows the trail of dead bodies all the way to the Baltic, to Lubbock Bay. He arrives there, and he's able to bribe the Nazis, uh, gold, paintings, part of his own fortune. And he gets some of the people off the ships some of the concentration camp survivors at the port waiting to be loaded on the ships. He manages to rescue them. He tells the rest, I will be back. And he races back to Sweden. Tragically, he arrives too late. He arrives the day after the ship is destroyed. But nonetheless, Folky Bernadotte is an amazing person. He's sometimes called the Prince of Peace. Uh, 
He rescues an extraordinary number of prisoners of war, multiple nationalities, uh, Holocaust survivors. Uh, and so he des- he's deserving of the kind of credit that your Wallenbergs and Schindlers and other remarkable people uh, are deserving of. There's so much more detail, obviously, in your book that you, you just fall in love with this guy and how he yeah. swindles Himmler. He's so smart. And you've got also testimonies from prisoners and how they get out because I read one of them from uh, a Polish guy who pretended he was French to get out with his friends. Yeah. And it's crazy. The uh, the Nazis even put rankings on the people they're going to let the, the Swedish count save. And they tell him, look, you can take Swedes, then you can take the French, then you can take the Poles, then you can... So there's actually a pecking order uh, reflecting their, you know, bigotry. And uh, some of these prisoners are quick to realize this. So one of them knows some French, so they're trying to pass themselves off as French, uh, but they're caught. So, um, yeah, I mean, even in the final minutes of the war, after all said and done, the Nazis went down just as horrifically racist uh, and anti-Semitic as uh, as they always were, yeah. I think we should go back uh, to the bay and let's talk about the ship's captains. I mean, first of all, how did the decisions come about to get these prisoners on the ships? And second of all, I mean, the reactions of the captains must not have been positive. Yeah, the captain of the ship, his name is Heinrich Bertram. Um, you obviously have to be a loyal Nazi if you're going to be the captain of a, one of the world's greatest ocean liners and one of Hitler's favorite ships. So he obviously was a loyal Nazi member. Now, when you read about him, it's possible that he was a Nazi in name only. For example, um, the, the infamous St. Louis ordeal in the 30s when the ship uh, was filled with 917, 927 uh, uh, Jews and was taken to Cuba. Um, and was um, they were rejected from disembarking in Cuba and taken back to Europe. Uh, the captain of that ship, uh, Gerhard Schroeder was the captain of that ship. He was obviously a Nazi party member because you're not put in charge of a great ship if you aren't. But he was a Nazi in name only. And he actually put his life on, on, the, on the line to try to save some of the people. So uh, we're not sure about the captain of the, of the Cap Arcona. What happens after the war is he is captured and taken to one of the tribunals, not the Nuremberg uh, trials, but uh, the Hamburg tribunal. And there he's found guilty. But some of the passengers on the ship who survived come back and testify on his behalf that he tried to help them. So he's a a, a Nazi. He's in charge of the ship. He's not the original captain. The original captain uh, committed suicide, put a gun in his mouth and blew his head off because he just couldn't handle the horrors of the war and the Holocaust and and, and the inhumanity we're seeing. So uh, Heinrich Bertram was the new captain. He initially refuses to allow the Nazis to board his ship. Now, this ocean liner is the size of the Titanic almost. So imagine a giant ocean liner and a small landing craft sailing up to it. There's no way they could get up on the ship. So he doesn't lower the gang rails. He doesn't let anyone on. So he initially fights the Nazis and doesn't allow them on the ship. The deal they finally make is they say, look, 
we know where your family lives. They threaten to kill his entire family. So he lets the Nazis board, but he's opposed to them. He fights against them, loading his ship up with concentration camp prisoners. And I can't even imagine. I try to take the readers back to that moment. Here's what we know. Um, hundreds would be taken and boarded and put on the ship, dying. Uh, skeletons haven't eaten. They were put in the deep hatches and holds of the ship. The hatches were sealed above them. Some were there for a day, two, three, four days with no food, no water, no medical attention, no light. And each, every couple hours, two, three, four, five hundred more would be loaded on the ship. Then when the next group came out, a hundred may have died, so they just threw them overboard. Or they would load another four hundred and then take fifty dead off and take them ashore. An hour or two later, they would come back with another couple hundred to load on the ship, and they'd take off another hundred that died. So it was this macabre scene of for a couple of days of just bringing hundreds and hundreds at a time on board and throwing dozens, if not hundreds, of dead bodies off, which means we don't know exactly how many prisoners and Holocaust survivors were on board the ship. We can only guess because a hundred would be brought on, then 500, then a hundred thrown overboard, a hundred dead bodies taken back, then 400 more brought on. So we, it's impossible to determine how many exactly were on the ship, but he fights against it the entire time. And one point he even leaves his ship and goes ashore and tries to meet with Hamburg sued the company that operated the ship and says to them, look, I think they're going to sink my ship. I don't have a crew. My my engines aren't working properly. Would you intervene and stop the Nazis? They try to, but the Nazis overrule the company, of course. He also meets with some of the prisoners, and he instructs his crew to try to round up food and water and feed and care for them as best as possible. So Heinrich Bertram is a complicated guy, but there's enough of we know about him to suggest that he was at least empathetic and tried to save people. If not, the possibility that he might have been a Nazi in name only all along. But he does his damnedest to try to save everyone. Uh, unfortunately, he can't. At one point, they board and a Gestapo official actually holds a gun to his head and tells him he'll kill him on the spot. So Bertram does what he can, but, uh, you know, He's a shipping captain with a skeletal crew, only a handful of sailors. And how do you fight against the Gestapo with armed guards? So, well, What other choice did he have, really, at the end of the day? He tries his darndest. He even, when, the, um, when they're under fire and the ship is sinking and there's explosions throughout the bay, he sends his cabin boy, uh, his name was Franz Wolf, with two Fs. He sends this young teenage cabin boy off the ship in his uh, skiff, in a, the captain's little, you know, boat, to try to rescue people. So, I mean, he's thinking of his crew. He's thinking of the prisoners. He, to the very last moment, he's trying to rescue people. So he's a an interesting and compelling figure. Um, one of the things I've always wanted to do, and I sent several letters, wasn't able to do it, but I haven't given up, is I'd like um, uh, Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel, I'd like them to list him as among the righteous, a righteous Gentile, because he put his life on the line to try to save all these concentration camp prisoners, even if he wasn't able to. I really feel sorry for him. Yeah. 
Um, magic figure. I mean, how would you react in that situation? I mean, I would, trying to save people or save yourself and your crew at the end of the day, I would probably save myself. Yeah, and he tries to save his crew and save the prisoners, uh, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What were the conditions on the ships? How did the prisoners survive? Yeah. So we don't know how many were on the ship. Um, we can guess that anywhere from 4,500 to maybe 7,500, it's all guesswork at this point. And that's, a, I realize that's a big range, but we just don't know. What we know is thousands were on the ship and thousands died. Thousands died before the ship was blown up. Thousands died during the disaster. Um, so, but a few people did survive and they left descriptions of it, as did the captain. So, for example, there were two brothers, Beric and Jozak Jakubowicz. They were Polish, as the names would imply, and they survived Auschwitz, which is one of your great research passions. So these boys described being put on board the ship and put into a deep, dark hold for days with no food, no light, no water, no nothing. One of the brothers had stolen a little bread and a couple of non-perishables that they were able to use to keep alive. They were in the dark. They described that there were so many prisoners there that they had one tub in the middle of it, which was used to go to the bathroom, but it had overflowed. They described that they were living in a couple of inches thick of Europe, urine and feces, human feces. They described that there was no way to sleep because of the urine and feces on the floor that they had to sleep on top of the dead. Uh, they described that there were so many dead down there that it was like a charnel house. Um, and when the ship starts to sink uh, and frigid water from the Baltic, and the Baltic is quite cold even in May, uh, 42 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so as the ship starts to uh, sink, they described that so many people were dead that they, they couldn't even try to swim and save themselves. Those that were still alive, as it's filling up with water, could not even tread water because they were so weak from surviving the Holocaust, surviving the death march, and surviving days in this deep, dark hole. So virtually everyone in the hold but the two brothers ends up dying. Um, so their descriptions of just bodies piled up on top of one another – living on top of the dead. I mean, it is a nightmare beyond comprehension. Uh, and um, their descriptions mirrored 
the other descriptions that survived. So people were literally packed, dead and alive, like sardines into the deep holes of the ship and denied food, water, and anything, unless if Heinrich Bertram could get food and water to a few of them when the Gestapo wasn't on deck and on board. So you've given us all of the background information. Um, we know there are prisoners on ships and barges in Lubeck Bay. Um, they're in horrific conditions, but it's about to get worse, isn't it? So describe to us the events of the 3rd of May 1945. Right. So there's four ships uh, in the bay, uh, in Lubeck Bay by the port of Neustadt, N-E-U-S-T-A-D-T. Uh, two of them are... Uh, ocean liners, uh, along with the Cap Arconis, the Deutschland, and then the Aten and Thielbeck are uh, freighters. Uh, and the other three ships have maybe, we don't even know for sure, but maybe 2,000 or so uh, or less uh, prisoners in each one. The Cap Arconis loaded to the gills. Um, there's also thousands of prisoners at the port, and it's this um, uh, just unimaginably uh, – cruel scenario whereby they take uh, the launches out every you know hour or so taking the prisoners from the port that arrive by foot by train by barge and they're taking them out and loading them on the cap arcona and they'll take maybe a hundred out or maybe 300 out and then they they will the cap arcona the nazis on board will throw maybe 50 dead uh folks from the ship off or They'll load the barge with another 30 corpses. The barge, I mean, the, uh, the, the, the transport ship will go back to the port, get another couple hundred, uh, go back and then bring a couple dozen or whatever dead back. It's this cruel process for days. Um, meanwhile, what happens is, um, Heinrich Himmler, who had intended to, uh, use the Cap Arcona, uh, and all the prisoners on board, for a, uh, a negotiation with the Allies. He wanted to negotiate either for his own life or for a conditional separate surrender on the Western Front, which is, you know, to show you how mad he was, that that, that, that would be a possibility. But his argument is, look, here's a ship full of concentration camp prisoners in exchange for my own life. That's an interesting scenario. However, he gets captured and commits suicide. Of course, Hitler had committed suicide on April 30th. Goebbels soon after. Uh, Hermann Goering would get captured and, and later commit suicide. You know, the Nazi command is obliterated. So the ship's sitting there with thousands of prisoners on board, thousands at the port. No one knows what to do. There's two Nazis in charge of the coast and the port. One is Karl Kaufmann with a K and a K. He's uh, sort of like a mayor or governor, a politician. Uh, and the other one is Count George von Basewitz Bear, who's the top Gestapo official there. So they concoct this cruel plan. We don't want to be responsible for all these people deporting all these people on the ship. There's no orders from the Nazi command. The war's over. We're going to be overrun by the Allies any moment. So what they do is they load the ship up with fuel, and they decide that as soon as they're ready to surrender or as soon as they're overrun, they're going to scuttle the ship put it on the bottom of the Baltic, and take everyone with it. Uh, the hi history will forget the Titanic because so many more people will die on this Nazi Titanic. Um, and right when they're ready to make that happen, the British 6th Commando, uh, led by General Mills Roberts, a uh, special forces unit, hits the coast uh, and uh, work 
of the few Nazis that are there. It's not the Wehrmacht, the German military. It's the Volkstrom, a couple of old men and a couple of young boys with antiquated mm -hmm. firearms. So the Nazis uh, are wiped out by the British 6th Commando. And as the commando units are mopping up the last remaining folks, securing the town, securing the port, all these people are saying, you've got to go out to that ship. And there's thousands of prisoners on board. And they've been dying by, you know, droves by day. You've got to go out and help rescue them. And the Cap Arcona is so big that she can't dock at the small port. She has to drop anchor three kilometers out into Lubbock Bay. So as the British are contemplating going out, they hear this deafening roar. They look upward and the sky blackens. Six squadrons of typhoon bombers fly into the, uh, uh, into the Baltic, uh, the Lubbock Bay. And of course they target the largest ship there, the Cap Arcona. The Cap Arcona is low in the water. If she was high in the water, it means she would be empty. Yeah. She's filled with gasoline as if she's going to travel, and she's low in the water from thousands of prisoners. So they assume, the British, uh, the Royal Air Force assumes that maybe this is full of soldiers and sailors, and they're going to try to flee to Norway. There were some rumors that the Nazis would go to Norway for a final last stand, the last redoubt, using the cold winters, the deep fjords, the mountains, the geographic isolation to dig in. So all six squadrons open up on the Cap Arcona. They're, they're carrying a couple of hundred pound bombs. They have twin 20 millimeter like machine guns, cannons on the wings, two and two on each wing. They have uh, 60 pound rockets, which are, it's a rocket the size of a person, about six foot tall. And they just unload on the Cap Arcona. Uh, the explosion is so great uh, that it knocks people over three kilometers away on the port, you know, because this ship almost the size of the Titanic filled with fuel, it explodes, lifts the ship up, lays it back in. The ship starts rolling um, to uh, a 45 degree, then 90 degree angle. Um, and um, thousands are killed instantly. Thousands are blown into the water. Uh, we don't even have accurate numbers on all this, uh, but it is a an unimaginable and horrific experience uh, 75 years ago. And what happens to the people in the water? So we don't know how many get into the water. Some are blown over uh -huh. as the ship rolled. They fall into the water. Others jump into the water because the, the, the ship catches fire. So people are being cooked alive. Uh, those in the water, most of them die from a few things. Number one, the Baltic is, uh, you know, 42, 43 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in May. So hypothermia. And remember, yeah. these folks survived years or months or years in concentration camps. They survived the death march and they survived days in the, you know, in the ship in these deep, dark halls without food or water. So um, uh, many die of hypothermia. As the ship uh, rolls over and starts to go down, many are sucked under because of the suction created by such an enormous ship. And thirdly, um, some of those that are hanging on wood and kicking or swimming or trying to get away from the ship and stay afloat, the Typhoon bombers are not a giant bomber like a British uh, Lancaster bomber or, let's say, an American B-17 or B-24. It's like a mid-sized bomber. They're ideal for hunting tanks, trains, and ships. So they actually can, can fight 
so that the, the planes turn around and they strafe with their machine guns, their twin 20s. They strafe the survivors in the water, turning Lubick Bay red. Now, after all that, some managed to make it ashore. Uh, several of those that made it ashore three kilometers away and how they did this with the frigid water after surviving the Holocaust, I don't know. I don't think Michael Phelps could swim three kilometers in no. that condition uh, in cold water ashore. How they did it is extraordinary. It's tragically, as they arrive and they're lying, you know, on the coast with the water lapping at their feet, there were some Hitler youth from the town, and there was a naval base at Lubick Bay, very small. Some of the young naval cadets that managed to elude the British 6th Commando, they start machine gunning those that are lying uh, on the on the on the shoreline. Uh, General Mills Roberts and the British Sixth Commando hear the gunfire. They see what's happening, so they're charging down the beach. And uh, this is an event that uh, of everything in the book, um, reading you know 700 pages of these formally you know classified top secret documents in this horrific larger than life story. The thing that I think hit me the hardest was this. As General Mills races down the coast, um, these Hitler youth, these young naval cadets, uh, they see that there's no way that they can stand up to the British Special Forces. So they have a decision to make. With their final breath, their last act on this earth, do they help the people in the water to survive? Do they fight the British? Or do they run to save their lives? Those would be three responses one might imagine. They chose neither of that, none of those. What they did was they had run out of bullets, so they turned their guns around and used the butts of their guns to bash the skulls in of the women, children, adults lying on the beach. Uh, and that was their last act, which shows the, the depth of, of their inhumanity. Um, and General Mills Roberts, who spent a lifetime in uniform and was was a badass. Uh-huh. Uh, he says that he, he told his soldiers, "We're t- taking no prisoners. Just tear them limb from limb. No prisoners." He said he was not an officer or a gentleman, so they just annihilated uh, the Hitler Youth and the young naval cadets. Uh, tr- uh, so the scene is just uh, you know it's from Dante's Inferno. Um, now, despite all that, um, a few people survived. We don't have accurate numbers. It's hard to say. Uh, my guess is two, three hundred. Um, we're not sure. But two of them were the Jakubovitz brothers, uh, Beric and Jozek, uh, teenagers. They were Polish, as the names would suggest. They survived Auschwitz and other camps. Uh, they survived the Death March. These boys were put into a deep hold on the ship. Um, and for a few days, they were locked into this hold. The hatches were battened down above them. Um, pitch black. There were hundreds and hundreds of people in there. Many of them ended up dying. Uh, they didn't have food or water. Luckily for the boys, uh, Barrack, uh, the older one, managed to sneak some uh, hard bread and some things in his pockets uh, that he had gathered along the, the, the way. And um, uh, they're actually s- sitting and sleeping on top of corpses. Why? Because with so many people down there and only one open tub for waste, uh, the floor overran with human feces and urine. So they're in there. When they're, the boat is attacked, uh, one of the rockets or bombs tears a gaping Titanic-esque hole 
in the side of the hall, and the frigid Baltic Sea rushes in. Of course, most people are dead, or those that have survived, they die instantly from the shock. They can't swim. They can't tread water. The two Jakubovitz brothers are treading water, and as they're going up to the top of the hall, they realize the hatch above them is closed. So, you know, they're going to drown. It's inevitable. Right when they get to the very top, some brave souls on, on the deck of the ship went below decks. Despite the bombing, the explosions, the ship being on fire, surviving the concentration camp experience, they went below deck opened up the hatch and reached down and pulled the two Jakubovitz brothers and others out. Uh, they go running down the hallways as the ship is rolling. The halls are filling up with water. They get the one hallway, which is engulfed in flames. Uh, to avoid being burned, they look up and there's a, um, a hatch above them, like an, uh, like an air conditioning duct. Yeah. So they get on one another's shoulders and open up the hatch. One brother goes up, reaches down, and pulls the other brother up. As they reach down to save their, the, those that save them, the hallway is engulfed in flames and everyone's burned. So the boys go running out onto the deck. The ship is rolling severely. So uh, Beric goes in the water. He tells Jozek to join him. Jozek can't swim. Jozek's going to take his chances on board. So what he does as the boat is rolling, he's shimmying and crawling on the deck. Uh, and getting to the bottom of the ship as it rolls over to stay above the waterline. Now, the Cap Arcona is so big that it's bigger and deeper than the Baltic is, the Lubick Bay is deep at, at three kilometers. So the ship never fully submerses. Mm. It looks like a beach whale. It's part underwater, part above water. So Barrick, or Jozek rather, is, uh, you know, on the hull of the ship. The problem is the hull is on fire underneath, below. So it's baking, cooking him alive. He's burning. Mm. Beric gets picked up by a German fisherman uh, who sees the disaster, hops into his fishing boat, and is plucking survivors out of the water. Beric and a few others are taken back to the town of Neustadt, and the fisherman takes them to a bakery. There's no food left, but there's an oven they can like to keep warm, and they wrap up in the burlap sacks, uh, you know, the empty sacks of sugar and flour and whatever, because they're naked, they're freezing. Um, they try to get the name of the fisherman, but he is so afraid of the Nazis, and he's helping uh, uh, innocent survivors, so he won't give them his name. I've tried to find his name, because I'd like to have him listed in Yad Vashem in yeah. Israel as a righteous Gentile, but I couldn't find his name and couldn't find anything else. But... Um, in the morning, the door of the bakery's kicked down, and Barrick thinks they're going to die, but it's the British. British soldiers save a couple of people in the bakery. They take them to a hospital. Who does Barrick see in the hospital? His brother, Jozek. That night before, while Barrick was asleep in the bakery, the British went out in launches and plucked whomever was still alive on the ship, off the ship, and they put him, take him to the hospital. The two brothers managed to move to uh, the United States. They went to near Boston, and I'm happy to say they lived a full and rich uh, life uh, there. Um, so amazingly, some people survived this uh, uh, this disaster on May 3rd. It just beggars belief. It just, just the imagery of, of that you're conjuring up for us um, and the savagery of what happened um, and how depraved humanity can be. It just, I mean, I... My great uncle was a bomber crew. He flew in Lancasters. And I know 
that he would have been destroyed had he found out that he had been responsible for bombing that ship. Did the RAF men, did they know? Did they find out? And how did they react? Good. So um, all the reports, you know, after every bombing mission, every, every mission, every fighter pilot, bomber pilot, your uncle and a crew of a Lancaster, they all file a report. They all went back and filed the reports. However, the British government probably, with the nod from the Allies, classified everything top secret. So all the reports were gathered and classified. They were supposed to be classified for 100 years, not to be opened until 2045, making it a century-long secret. Um, but uh, I've gone through the reports of the, uh, the crews. Um, they were led by... Uh, Johnny Baldwin, he was the lead pilot, and he was an ace. Uh, he was apparently a hell of a, a pilot and fighter. Um, but one of the things that I found was most of the men did not know what they were doing. Uh, how could You could say, how the hell could you not know you were hitting an ocean liner and yada, yada, yada? Well, the British, the Royal Air Force, was the RAF was so short on pilots, and this is the last hours of the war, and they're bombing the Baltic coast. Uh, so what they did is they had 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Johnny Baldwin, who was in charge of the uh, six squadrons, and each one was supposed to have, I think it was eight planes or so, but they were all operating with five, six, because they lost so many planes and pilots. He was uh, uh, he was the old man in charge of it. He was 23, only 23. So these young boys go in there. So first off, the fog of war. You're 19. You're scared to death. This is maybe the first mission, one of the first missions you've ever flown. Secondly, it was unbelievably overcast. In fact, when they went out early that morning, I think they scrambled the planes at around 0530 in the morning. It was so overcast they had to come back, refuel, and then go back later. They ultimately hit the Cap Arcona at 1430, 2.30 p.m. Um, so um, they were young boys. They couldn't see. It was raining. The cloud cover was bad. If you're in a bomber, as your uncle would have known, uh, you don't want to go down below the clouds at, you know, 2,000 foot or something mm. because you're vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire. So they went down, they went in fast, slow, dropped everything and got the hell out. Um, and, you know, no one wants to be the last casualty of the world's worst war. So you can imagine these boys not questioning. And there had probably been rumors. We know there were rumors. That they might have heard rumors that the Nazis were trying to flee you know, so you put all that together, uh, it's sort of a perfect storm. So most of these um, uh, pilots and crew members did not know. I found one that did know. His name was Pierre Klosterman, uh, with a K. He was French. He was part of the Freed French Forces, and he was flying with the RAF. Klosterman was a seasoned pilot. Uh, he knew exactly what was happening and what he was doing. Did he share it with others? We have no idea. But from reading his report, what he said is they were liberating uh, or attacking, whichever you want, the port at Kiel, which is not far from uh, Neustadt and Lubbock Bay, two days earlier. And when he was doing that, he said, my friend who was flying on my left wing and my friend who was flying on my right wing, they were both blown out of the sky by the Nazis. He said the plane I was flying was riddled with machine gun holes. And he said, I had a hole in the tail of my plane big enough to kick a football. In the U.S., we'd say soccer. You'd say football <laughs> through it. it so be. that's the plane he's flying. Yeah. So he flies in, and he says, everyone I knew in Paris was killed. 
This war has been going on for years. Everyone's dead. We've got to end the war. My friends were blown out of the sky two days before. He says, I didn't give a damn. He says, I was going to kill everyone and everything in the water and on the ground. So they strafe the ship. They strafe the people in the water. They strafe the port. They strafe the three other ships that were in the water. Uh, three of the four ships would sink and be destroyed. But so, um, you know, I, I'm not weighing in one way or another on, on Mr. Klosterman. Uh, it's war, and we don't know unless we were sitting in the cockpit of the typhoon bomber. Um, so I think uh, most of them, uh, Alex, did not know uh, what they were doing. They were just following orders, and it was cloudy, and it was raining, and there was mm. fire. Uh, people were firing at them from the ground. So Certainly as well. Um, they're just trying to get out alive, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, they are. So the story that we've discussed, um, it's, it's arguably history's worst case of friendly fire in history. It's secondly, arguably one of the worst maritime disasters in history. Thirdly, it's possibly, probably the, the last major disaster of the Holocaust and World War II. And fourth and finally, it, it, it might be the single bloodiest hour uh, of the Holocaust, which is really saying something. All that in this one story involving this remarkable ship, um, this ill-fated ocean liner, the Nazi Titanic, a.k.a. the Cap Arcona. Um, but yet people don't know about it because it was uh, the documents and records were classified for so long. So it just goes to show you, even though we think we know all there is to know about World War II or all there is to know about the Holocaust, the world's most studied conflict and most studied instance of genocide with embedded in a reporters and photography and video, I mean, things we never had before in history. Even though we think we know all there is to know, we don't know a lot of it. And history still has her secrets, including whoppers like this one. I just want to thank you, we both do, for coming on and and telling the story because as horrific as it is and as tragic and bloody as it is, we should know about it and we should know that these people died and we should remember them. So thank you so much for joining us. It's a way to remember them and a, yeah, it's a way to remember them and a way to try to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again, never again. I want to thank you, Alex and Alina, you, both of you, uh, for this opportunity and for doing what you're doing to help keep history alive. It's my pleasure, and I'd be happy to come on again in the future. Thank you. And don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month to help keep us going after the coronavirus crisis. You can do this by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.